Welcome to Find Me Outside the Podcast. I'm here with Tuesday Reinhardt and myself, your usual host of the wonderful event. And so we're now into the uh, season 1,575 and this is episode number 1,009,271 and it's wonderful to have you back with us again. Uh, we are spending our time together today exploring the Inspiration Series. So this was a series of three speakers we had who were absolutely rock and roll. And of course, we the way we run the pod now is we have these kind of like series of groups of people come on and then after a period of time, we reflect on that. And uh, luckily enough, we've got someone way smarter than me who's going to kick off the reflection, which is the indomitable Tuesday right up. How about that for an opening, hey? I love everything you just did. I was like, that's amazing. <laughs> I don't think we need to do anything different. Can you just talk to me for an hour? I liked it. You made it sound so good. I was like, what am I doing talking? Let's just like, Tim, like, just go. That's amazing. I liked it. All those years of theater school training, not gone to waste, mate. I can do a good, <laughs> I can do a good 30 second opener to a podcast. Let's do it. <laughs> Come on now. Is it Berthold Breck would be so, so happy. Berthold Breck would be, yeah, somewhat happy. He'd be happy now because we did the intro bit, which got the audience involved. Uh-huh. And then now we're kind of debriefing it, which is alienating them. Ooh. So they can not just have the experience, but they can build an analysis of it. Yeah, Berthold Breck, people, wonderful uh, theatre practitioner. Who obviously influenced him. In, in, in many and various ways. Wow. All right. Well, look, you know what? I know we've interviewed each other on this podcast, but I do feel... Like there's some unexamined nooks and crannies, just for the record. So many. I, I mean, like so many, but but the ones that we yeah, might I've actually kept those hidden on purpose. Um... <laughs> but I mean, the ones we might be willing to share. Right. Okay. Right. Fair enough. So like, I just feel like your theater and how you got like why you sought theater, what you uh, found there, uh, how you moved away from like all of that is like, I, I find it endlessly fascinating. I'm sure we can at some point weave it into how it deals with leadership and systems change, but you use it all the time. Yeah. I use it all the time. I use it all the time. Yeah. So I'm just saying at some point in, in our two millionth season. In our our two millionth, 755th episode. Exactly. Section, section B 1.1. That makes it sound a little bit like you're tired of doing it. Like, Oh, we're in that. Oh, yeah. episode. No, I mean, I mean, no, I don't, I don't feel that. I feel like, cause we're not actually that far in. No, I know. I'm, I'm exaggerating just in case anyone's <laughs> listening for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> this is, it isn't the truth. It's not our millionth episode. No, or whatever that number I no. said. No, I think, I think it's incredible. We've been around this long. I enjoy it. I love like it. I feel for me, like that's just like a ridiculous statement of celebration that, that this thing that you and I enjoy so much doing, and has become so much part of our shared reflection practices and, and our shared learning spaces just kept going, you know? Yeah. And uh, so for me, I, I love this. Yeah. I kind I love it too. I think it's amazing. And I was a little resistant. I know you know this and to like go to like interviewing people. I mean, I mm. feel like we could do it some, but I love it. Right. I love it. Right. Well, what did you like about these three interviews then? Was there anything that kind of like ran through these three that like stands out for you or any particular reflections on the, wonderful humans we had on this pod with us. So when I think of these three people, so Andrew Grant Thomas from Embrace Race, Sean Rutland from Hutch Games, and Alex McCann from Onside. So 
automatically I feel delighted because they are so different from each other, right? Sean, born in New Zealand, worked in the UK, right? Andrew Grant Thomas, I think he was born in Jamaica. I know he's of Jamaican descent now in Ohio and Massachusetts. And then Alice lived all over the world, right? And like really very different, right? So Alex kind of coming from a, kind of a privileged private education background. As a woman of color, you know, yeah. Right, as a woman of color. Yeah, exactly. Sean coming from a single mom who had him at 15. Andrew Grant and Thomas kind of being in between, right? Like these, why it delights me so much is they could not have been more different. Like these guests could not have been more different. And I just love to learn from people who are that kind of different from each other. And also unexpected. All three of them are quite, I think, unexpected to be doing what they're doing. You know, Andrew is like the biggest brainiac in the world, right? Like could be just like moving into serious <laughs> academia, right? Yeah. I met him at OSU, yeah. right? Like that's a man who could like be like tearing it up in the academy, who has chosen to do a consulting practice around educating children and their families around race, right? Sean, skateboarder, I like games. Oh, okay. I'm going to sell my company for $300 million later, Right. Alex, like just, you know, she even sounded surprised to find herself in Nova Scotia, right? She was, she was kind of like, oh, I, you know, I kind of had this background where, you know, we lived in Africa and my dad was a doctor and, you know, we, I had this kind of international development kind of enthusiasm and training and background. And, and here I am in Nova Scotia doing this thing. So they were all, I think they were all delightful in their difference, kind of surprising where they ended up. But do you know what else I realized as I thought through these last three interviews? All of them talked pretty significantly about their children and their parenting. And I love that on this podcast about leadership and systems change, people talked about their parenting and what they wanted for their kids and how their kids saw them in the world, right? And some of it was, you know, uh, for example, Andrew Grant Thomas has kind of dedicated his life to the world he wants to see for his children, right? They have to be able, we have to live in a world where kids are able to talk about race and, and embrace race, right? To actually be with issues of race. And he and his wife have dedicated their lives to kind of that endeavor for their children. And then you have Sean, who was kind of looking back and going, wow, as I was building this company, I might not have been the dad I wanted to be. But now I'm thinking about that and working with that and figuring that out and thinking through what it's going to take for me to be the dad I want to be. And Alex, you know, as she, you know, her quote was from her kid, right? That her, that it was kind of a, um, a sense that her kids kind of keep her going, right? That even though she, she's, she's not explicit in the way that Andrew Grant Thomas is doing it work with his kids, that certainly she moves through the world and she moves through innovation and business and incubates business as a mother, right? Like those yeah, there's things. no question. I mean, yeah. I just, just talking with Alex and knowing Alex outside of the pod and, and, and there's no question that her relationship to her kids and her relationship to her family's kids, you know, her extended family's kids is absolutely formative to kind of where she's chosen to live, what she chose, chooses to do for a job. And I, I, I love what you're saying, Cheese, you know, because, you know, we often invite these people onto the pod because they're big picture change agents. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, they're doing something remarkable at a scale that has caught your nice attention, you know. But it's so interesting that again and again, and it might be because of the questions we ask, but I don't think so. I think again and again, uh, people 
it, it, the, the story ends up being so personal, mm-hmm. you know, and you, and, and you kind of expect to come on these pods and hear these like brilliant strategies, mm-hmm. you know, these groundbreaking ideas, these seven steps that made it amazing. And what you end up hearing are these kind of like tumultuous stories of personal development mm-hmm. that give birth to these brilliant humans, but also these brilliant ideas, you know, so there's something in that whole willingness to be in the personal journey that actually leads to the type of leadership that responds to the changes that are most being called for in the world right now, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I just think it's a really solid reminder of that. When you talk to three leaders of this kind of caliber, mm-hmm. right, from these different backgrounds, and, and what they point to is a practice ground that's as intimate as their children. Right, right, exactly, yeah. But where do I get to carry out my theories of change? Mm-hmm. Home. Mm-hmm. That's where I'm most confronted. That's where I learn most. That's where I get to translate everything I think into a day-to-day practice, a minute-by-minute practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I buy that. That feels trustworthy to me. Feels so much more trustworthy to me than a diagram of a model right. or an organizational <laughs> chart or a for the what do we call it the twelve steps to systems awesomeness. Right. You know, there's something in the personal journey that grounds this in a life we can all relate to. It makes it feel. It makes the ability to be a change agent feel, I think, accessible. Mm-hmm. You know, and no matter whether you have kids or not, you know, like you've been a kid. Right, you, you know, children are around in this world. You have intimate relationships with people in an ongoing way, and and so I just think that's, I think there's a real lesson in what you're saying, yeah, about where the source of our change leadership comes from. Yeah, it was really, it felt sweet. You know, I feel like when people give you a, a view of their kids and their hopes for the kids, or aspirations for the kids, their relationship with their kids, right? Like that's like just a, that's a real opening. Not everyone kind of lets you in, in that way. You know, we've certainly talked with most of our guests have don't talk about their children and that's okay. It just doesn't come up. Right. But there's something that's a little bit like, Oh, I certainly feel like giving people access to my kids and my relationship with my kids and my thinking about my kids is like a a tender thing in my life. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, so I just thought what a, what a generous thing for all three of them to do, to just be like right out there with that. I was about to ask you uh, why you feel tender about it. And I was like, oh, that's not really fair. Maybe I'll just start the conversation. Great. I, know, I mean, the reason I would feel tender about it is because I'm not actually interested in other people's opinions about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not actually asking for your opinion on my parenting. <laughs> I'm just sharing what I'm up to. Yeah. You know, and like, there are people in my life that I ask about their opinion on my parenting, you, you know, or I will take it, mm-hmm. you know, but like when you bring it into a broad audience like this, I think it can feel really vulnerable because it, because it is so intimate, mm-hmm. you know, for, and therefore, and you're appealing out to a broader audience who's never going to understand the whole context no. of your situation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? So sometimes as a leader, you share these quite intimate parts of yourself, knowing that they're going to be judged or accepted or sometimes even 
exemplified when you don't want them to be. Right. You right. know, made a big deal about when they're, you know, they're, all three of them might be listening to this being like, oh God, oh no, they're really banging on about that thing about my children. I wish they had just picked up on my organizational strategy <laughs> element. Oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and so you put these things out there and then, and then people go with them, you right. know, and they go with them right. in their own way because they've got their own journeys. And, and, and I think there's something as intimate as how you relate to your kids or how you relate to your family or how you relate to your own self and your own heart. It can feel it can feel hard to let people have their own experience of that when yours is so tied to. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Totally, totally. I hadn't even thought. I hadn't even thought about that. They're probably like, oh, that's hilarious. That they might be like, okay, move on. Let's talk about what else we talked about. Um, <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> I think for me, there, it's a really interesting thing. I think Tim, so much of what we do in our work in the room, online, and in this podcast is share a lot about ourselves, right? We, you know, I think we're pretty, I think we're fairly open, but there is like, I feel like I can be as open as I get to choose how open I am about myself. My kids are whole other beings, right? And so I feel some real protection of them, right? I don't know what they want me to say or don't want me to say. And not that our guests didn't even come close to anything like uh, yeah, about their children, but you know, I, I, I notice I have this stance a little bit of, it's, I think it feels like, like a Zane asked all of us to get him car stickers for Christmas with a, a representation of us, right? So that he could put all of the family on his car, but they would all be different, whatever we wanted it to be. So I got him a mama bear sticker, right? Like that was me. And so I say that because I do, like when I think about my kids, I, when I have a vision of that right now, I'm like, I'm here and they're just a little bit behind me because I'm in, I like got it, right? I'm protecting, I'm like taking care. I'm, and, and he probably loves that as a 19 year old boy at this point, but that's my, oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah, my totally. <laughs> that's my vision. And so it's a little bit like when I let people into the part of my life that is my children, it's like letting them see my most tender part the place where I'm most vulnerable because these are the people that I care the most about and want to be the best I can be for. And so it's like allowing people, we allow people to see under the hood a lot, but it's like even going deeper under the hood to like kind of have, let, talk about my children. And so I just have a little protectiveness there, which I think is probably quite typical. So that's, I think why I feel a little tender, although, you yeah, know, like and, I, we, and I think that, I think that, you know, both you and I come from with survivors yeah. And so we come from backgrounds where that protectiveness is rooted in real life experience. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got, there's lots of my friends who I think are not protective enough. Yeah. Completely naive about the danger that exists in the world. But, but it's also because they don't have direct experience with it or they haven't engaged with their own direct experience mm-hmm. for it then to impact how they raise their kids or how they approach life. But I just, I'm interested because I think a lot of, a lot of literature out there in kind of like leadership talks about authenticity, mm-hmm. you know, like authentic leaders have the greatest impact. You know, the, there's a lot of talk about leaders being able to model being vulnerable mm-hmm. to create the ability for vulnerability in their teams, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and I often like, what's the right amount, you know, what's the, what's the balance there between how much you open up and how much you don't, you know, like how much of yourself do you need to show? And are you a bad leader if you don't show that kind of thing? And, and like, uh, when's oversharing when, yeah, when's everyone like, Oh God, Oh no, just, just stop dude. Like that's enough. <laughs> oh, no, no, didn't need to know that. 
just trying to get the timeline done. Right. You know? I, I just think it's, there's a lot of literature, obviously, and a lot of momentum towards this authenticity and leadership. And, and um, what, what do you think about that balance, you know, that like inviting people into the right amount and where do you land on that? Yeah. Well, I feel like, so two things, I want to talk about one of our clients, but and, and how they experienced kind of a bit of oversharing and over-authenticity and what that brought into the workplace, right? So I want to talk about that in a moment. But I feel like it authenticity, like I'm holding up my hands. If you could see me, Tim can see me. But like authenticity, yes, right here. When I'm, but it also has to go with like, like self-sovereignty or having yourself, right? Like if you have yourself and you're not asking for anything with your authenticity. I think it makes a really big difference. But if I'm just opening a vein and asking people to take care of me, then actually, you know what I mean? Like that's just a bunch of authenticity and vulnerability without the ability to care for myself, which I think could be a misuse of power as a leader. And I think it absolutely can. We've seen, we have been with leaders whose staff take care of them because they seem so vulnerable. And so I think that there's like, yes, authenticity and vulnerability with the capacity for self-sovereignty, right? Like both, they have to go together, I think, to be useful. So I think that that's- what, Can you just like self-sovereignty, can you- Yeah, for me, that's like, the way I'm using it is like the ability to kind of hold yourself, to bring yourself back to center, to kind of, you know, it's not that you have to be centered every moment, but the capacity to bring yourself back, to be responsible for your own feelings, your own perspectives, your own- ways of being, right? And so I think that, you know, certainly I think that feels like a really important piece that we miss in a lot of our conversation. I don't mean self-sovereignty and like holding yourself apart and getting, having your shit together. I mean, actually like the deeper, no, I got this and it's okay. I can be vulnerable here and, but you never doubt that I actually am okay and I got it and I can bring myself back to center. And you have that too, right? And so I think that those are two things. And then I was thinking about the client. Oh, do you want to say something before I go on about the client? I felt like you might want to say something. I'm not, yeah. Is that, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, won't I don't forget. want to interrupt your flow either. All right. So no, I won't forget. yeah, don't lose it. So I really relate to this idea of self-sovereignty, you know, and have been in situations where I haven't been ready to share something mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and have shared it and then have felt the trembling nature of that, all the inappropriateness of that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like in an attempt to be authentic, right? I've actually brought something out of me that wasn't ready for the collective light in a professional situation, mm-hmm. was way more suited at that point to like a conversation with like a close friend or intimate sort. Mm. just wasn't cooked enough Yeah, yep. to turn up into an environment that wasn't created for care necessarily or healing or, you know, all of that. And at the same time, there's this little voice in me that's like, well, we can't avoid our places of work being places of healing now. Mm. But the increased levels of diversity, the fact that uh, increasingly we're having, you know, people who have experienced direct trauma kind of like in our workplaces, that is beginning to be recognized. And so there's kind of like the context of historical trauma. There's the context of a personal life trauma. And there may even be the context of trauma that's taken place within the workplace itself, you know, and, and trauma is probably even too strong a word. I'm probably like amplifying something I don't need to, or maybe not. So um, I don't know. There's, there's something in here about like, yes, that self-sovereignty and that ability to like 
hold my own stuff. I'm not bringing it here because I need something from you. I'm bringing it here because I feel like it contributes to our shared space. Mm-hmm. You know, and that can feel vulnerable as you do it, but not so much that you tip off balance. Maybe I'm answering my own question here, but there's there's something in that because I, I do think workspaces, certainly innovation spaces like the ones we're in, where we've got multiple, often conflicting stakeholders trying to figure out something like healthcare across a nation, which is something we're getting into at the moment. You know, there has to be healing in that for it to work. Yes, and I think. I want to just say, and no one's going to have it perfect all the time. Like, of course, we're going to tip over sometimes, be like, oh, okay, (laughs) maybe that was a little too much. You know what I mean? Like, so it's not, it's again, you know, it's like the chaotic path, right? You're not only going to land on the- Shouldn't have shared the story of the beatings from my Latin teacher. Damn it. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) On the other hand- Of course, that would be your story, right? Latin teachers. That was a thing. That was a thing, right? For you. Yeah, totally. My Latin teachers yeah. were so bad in <laughs> in Kinnikinnick, Ohio, without a stoplight. My goodness. So, uh, yeah. So it's so I think you know, like part of it is like testing, but even in the testing, you know, like experimenting too much, not enough, but like there has to be some capacity to hold yourself. I think what I'm resisting is the idea that I get to come bring my stuff and dump it. Yeah. And expect them for whatever reason, historical, personal role to have to take care of it. So I, I feel careful and cautious. I believe that our workplaces can be amazing places of healing, but I think when we rely on them for our healing, it gets muddy. It gets, you know, it's like, um, yeah, I think it's hard. I think, but I think that it can happen there and it does happen there. We see it happen there all of the time. So I wouldn't want to back away from the possibility of it, but it's like not the main function. No, because there's work in the middle. Yeah. So we're not, the purpose isn't healing. Right. Like the healing take place for us to be able to fulfill what we're trying to achieve together, right? Which is different than having a place that is devoted to healing, right? And I think that's the shift. So it's like, it's like what is necessary for us to be able to make progress on the challenge we're trying to overcome? And that is then the driver. That is the purpose at the center. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. And I believe yeah. in that. I mean, I believe in that so much that this is why I felt so resistant early in our careers together to people saying, you know, you have to do the personal healing before you do the, before you kind of do the collective that you start with all the personal healing and then you move out. I actually don't believe that. I believe we can be in work together and I can have healing and then it can go deeper for me. And then out to you, like, I just think it's so multi-directional, but I think in our workplaces, my sense is like, unless, like you said, unless like that's explicitly the intent right? The healing is a beautiful byproduct. It is not the intent of the work or the purpose of the work. And we saw this with a client of ours uh, who, who talked about, you know, they'd given so much permission for kind of, we want to be in a workplace that works with issues of equity and race in a real way. And we want people to be honest about their experience. And we want them to feel like this is a safe place. That what happened was, you know, People just felt like they could be any old way because they were invited to be authentic, right? And they're like, but this is my authenticity, right? Like, yeah, but we still got to do this work for these people and your trauma can't keep you from helping the people we're here to help. 
right? And so I remember feeling a little confused when they first brought it up, like, oh, how how does that work? But you could see people like getting into their own healing and their own narrative and it keeping them from doing the work they were there to do, right? So it just needed, I think, probably a series of really good conversations to recalibrate. Yes, we want this to be a, a good workplace where people can talk about these things and bring up these issues and we have to get our job done. And how will we begin to be together to make sure that that happens, right? And of course, we're going to go to the side, we're going to err on one side and then we'll pull it back and we'll err on one side and pull it back. But um, there's an interesting expectation, I think, that authenticity is all of the time, everywhere, in every circumstance. And that's who I am. And Seth, Seth Godin, Godin thank you. I'm like, Godin. He talks about, he's, he is not a fan of authenticity. He's not at all. He's just not. It's so hilarious. He's just like, what? I don't always get up and want to do my job. He's like, so authentically, I don't have to that day. He's like, no, no, I don't need to be my authentic self. I need to go do my job. And it's just kind of funny because he's kind of created this whole life, but he's just kind of a funny kind of cantankerous. But I was like, oh, I never really thought about that. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, because there are days when he's just got to get it done. Mm -hmm. And you can't be all in your feelings. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I actually feel like we've picked up on like one of the, like, or at least for me, an invisible thread that ran through those three pods, you know, this kind of like balance between the kind of like personal and the professional, this balance mm. between the, the kind of healing and the well-being and the need to get things done. You know, I can really feel mm. that kind of like conversation ranging through all three of those pods with those three incredible characters we had on, you know. And then maybe the last thing I'll say, because I know we're getting near the end of the pod, the last thing I'll say is there's, I I felt like running through all three of those pods was almost something serendipitous, Mm. you know, how they ended up doing what they were doing. It's great. It's like, you know, that, that, that sense that like things happen to you or you just happen to be in the right place at the right time, or you just happen to meet the right person in the right moment. Or, you know, you have all these plans and then life gets hold of your tail and swings around in another direction. And and so I just, I really, uh, I felt like that was another theme that ran through that their path to success, inverted commas, mm-hmm. success, wasn't like some linear yeah. 12 step, did my MBA, now I'm really successful. You know, it was a real, it was, you know, I mean, I think it ties back to this idea of personal journey and stuff, but, but that idea of serendipity of like, actually, you know, being awake enough to see what's landing in your life mm-hmm. so you can best respond to it, mm-hmm. you know? And I thought that all three of them are going to talk about that. Uh, that all three of them exhibited that in how they turn up. Yeah, I think that that's... And, and so I'm curious about, as you say that, and I take it back to our earlier conversation, a little bit about soft self, self-sovereignty. Mm. I think that it takes some courage to take that meandering path and some belief and some belief in your wherewithal to take that yeah. kind of path that's uh, that I would say is probably present in all three of those folks. Some willingness to take the serendipitous path and just see the next thing and become a postman or do you know what I mean? Or, or whatever it is that will take you to the next place. And, <clears throat> but also a a huge amount. I'm curious because this is like really, I, oh, I, you know, like I'm really curious about each of their, what I would call spiritual journeys, although it might not look in any way religious, but that kind of belief in yourself, the courage to take risk and the humbleness they all exhibited. Just like 
amazing humbleness from those three people who are quite remarkable and exceptional people, each one of them. I mean, it's so interesting for me to choose, you know, because I mean, I just read a lot of traditional stories, you know, and there's no traditional story that says, yeah, get from A to B as quickly as possible. <laughs> and in the most <laughs> okay. life. Okay. Like all the traditional stories that I've engaged, and of course I've engaged with traditional stories from my own, uh, you know, my own family and my own traditions more than others. But, it, but you know, they, they, you know, it's what Martin Shaw calls the circuitous route, you mm, know, like it's mm-hmm. actually in the journey that you grow and discover to get to the point, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, to get to discover the gemstone or to get to find the thing or to get to conquer the, you know. And so I think it's... um. I think there is something really in this serendipitous in like the circuitous nature of finding your way, you know, that uh, mm-hmm. kind of strikes me in all of their stories, you know, maybe it's a, a good way for us to sign off today. That's great. I love it. I loved it. I loved all three of these interviews. They felt so different and interesting. And I hope, I hope our listeners did too. Yeah. Well, friends, love it. There's more to come. Stay tuned to find the outside the podcast because There's deliciousness in the pipeline. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. 